You're listening to the Irish Times. I left Croke Park last night, Pat, at about nine o'clock, and I think that's me done in Croke Park for the year. That's it. Last game. Last game. You're not going next Sunday. I'm not. No, I'm off next Sunday. My, my uh, it's my birthday next week. Oh, well, happy birthday! And, uh, the, so I don't, uh, I don't have to do the women's football final next Sunday. But I was at the Camogie final yesterday. So you ended the year on a low. I ended the year on a desperate low. Like I have done the last, I think three of the last four or four of the last five Camogie finals, and they used to be great. The, around the turn of the decade uh, when Wexford were playing uh, there were brilliant finals and brilliant games to watch and um, sadly Camogie has been think of a Gaelic football match Pat I know you don't like to yeah but think of a Gaelic football match where you're actually not allowed to tackle where a free is given for every bit of contact yeah that's essentially what these camogie games have become at the top level, certainly between Cork and Kilkenny. So there were some frees given yesterday. There were, uh, there was contact. yeah. So Cork won. The, they're back to back All Irelands. They won by a point, fourteen points to thirteen. Following on from last year's ten nine final. Ten nine final last year. So no goal in two All Ireland finals in a row. And indeed, if you go back to the one the previous year, it was like one thirteen to one nine from Kilkenny by two Kilkenny and one of those goals came from a free so one goal from play in three finals over the last three years and it the Why quality well, like because we, we've been say, saying all summer that hurling is the greatest sport in the world yes so why are we saying that the female equivalent is a tactical dreary mess these teams have made it so in a way they have both of them line up with a, sorry, A, they know each other inside out. Like they've played three games, last year's final, this year's league final and yesterday. All of them decided by a point. Two to Cork, one to Kilkenny. Um, they know A, the ins and outs of everything that each other does. Um, so they, like the Cork manager, Paddy Murray, yesterday talked about how his his one of his stats guy uh, takes 14 hours to analyse a game. That's the level that they're going to. Like, it takes 14 hours to sit down and go through a game to bring the manager the the, the stats or the, his analysis from the microphone game. didn't catch me rolling my eyes know, there. Yeah. So that level of analysis, like that old, like the, the Pat Spillane thing, paralysis by analysis, there's an element of that. There's also an element of the, and both managers and Downey and Paddy Murray talked about this afterwards, that the rules in Camogie, how its referee needs to be looked at. It is, by the book, a non-contact sport. So it's not it's not hurling. You know, anybody that switched on RTE yesterday, I mean, it would have got a reasonably big uh, TV audience yesterday because there's no other sport on and it's on RTE and people like to stick on a match on a Sunday. Um, I'd say the majority of them were tuning in thinking that they were watching a women's hurling match but Camogie is not women's hurling the way it's refereed. Like, the amount of frees yesterday would drive you up the wall. And like, so the final score was 14-13, so 27 scores. 18 of them were from frees. Wow. Uh, frees or 65s or, or place balls. Now, the quality of free-taking was exceptional. But this will tell you the game. Cork took six shots at the post from play all day. Six? Six all day. Missed with one of them and scored with the other five. That's an alarming statistic. Isn't it? 
It, so it is, like you said, uh, it is like a Gaelic football game yeah. and that because they know people can't shoot from... 80 yards. L- put a line up along the pitch, a defensive line. Uh, and cross the half-back line and dare the other team to, to run through. Uh, and they know that high ball into the box, uh, the players go up with their sticks, they don't go up to catch. So you can't, it's not like you stick a six foot four girl on the edge of the box, or at least neither of these teams have one to stick on the edge of the box and lamp high ball in. So there's not even that. So it becomes a running game. And God, it's just so... Like, and this is the thing, you go to these these games um, and... Every year, you know, it's 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 their showpiece of the year. It's the mo- most coverage Camogie gets every year, and you love when it's a great game. Um, but God, these the, these finals the last few years have just been so dreary and so stop start. And I don't know. There seemed to be a mood among Camogie people yesterday going, "This can't go on. We've got to change this." As in a rule change, a rule change, a refereeing change. So. <laughs> And Downey was very funny afterwards in fairness to her and she didn't want to really have a go at the referee too much but she did at one stage say well if James McGrath has nothing to be at these days maybe he can come in and give the referees a bit of a, a bit of a talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Downey looked like she was pretty close to coming onto the pitch yeah, herself by the time, last minute. Yeah, by the time she talked to us it was an hour later so she had, she had calmed down. Right. But anyway that was my Sunday. Um... Later on, we'll be talking to Emmett, who is over in Emmett Malone, who's over in Poland, watching the latest chapter of talking about Dull and Dreary, the Ireland soccer team's travails. Uh, But first, we're going to talk about Saturday night's tennis and Naomi Osaka won the US Open and uh, it was a fantastic thing. And we have to start and mention that fact because there's well, a that's good what chance. that's all I'm here to talk about. I don't know. Did anything else happen? Yeah, <laughs> it really uh, her her winning this title and becoming the first Japanese woman to win a Grand Slam title. Uh, she's half Asian, but it's a heck of an achievement, and she's been superb the whole tournament. And for her <laughs> instances that came thereafter, she hasn't quite gotten the respect that she deserves. Well, let's hold that thought mm-hmm. and talk to an actual. Proper tennis expert, mm-hmm. Amy O'Connor, uh, freelance journalist and tennis nut. Tennis nut, not, I think, fair, fair assessment. Yeah. yeah, fair assessment. Tell me about Naomi Osaka. So Naomi Osaka is a 20-year-old 20, 20 player. Um, she is born in Japan, um, raised in Florida and... For the last kind of year or two, she's kind of been on the come up. You know, people have been very excited about her. Um, earlier this year, she actually bet Serena Williams at the Miami Open, I think. Never heard of Serena. Um, <laughs> but she's been on the come up and um, this tournament kind of played through her skin, like really, I think, lost one set through the entire mm. tournament and was very much the underdog coming into the final on uh, on Saturday. I think everyone was kind of expecting the whole, you know, Serena reaching her 24th mm. Grand Slam. It was a bit of, a, I think, perceived as being a bit of a coronation but then she came out and she dominated from the first set um, she won that set 6-2 and really caught Serena on the hop within half an hour you know she was upset and Serena just wasn't in uh, she didn't find her groove anyway she, you know her mm. she was like on four stairs left right and centre her serve wasn't really there and uh then what happened <laughs> shortly after during the second set um, Osaka kind of came back into it again um, momentum was still with her 
But eventually Serena got a breakup and at the point where she got the breakup, Osaka broke back. And at that point, then uh, the umpire deemed that there was a coaching violation and then all hell broke loose mm. uh, shortly thereafter. Let's get into a small bit for the uninitiated. Mm-hmm. You know, a coaching violation, seem, I, that has always struck me as a weird rule in tennis mm-hmm. that, that you can't be coached from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is always something that I 100% presume is is unobserved as a rule. You know, it's that that people do it the whole time and nobody cares. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty much what happens. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think if you watch any tennis match, whether especially the Grand Slams, like you do always see the coaches gesturing from the box. Most of the time it is overlooked. And actually, you know, most of the, like the WTA and the ATP, they advocate for, they want encore coaching to be a yeah. thing. They're in favour of it. But most of the time, umpires will overlook it. But so this time... Uh, Mur Toglu who was Serena Williams coach she mm. was observed making a kind of a hand gesture Serena said that she didn't see it and she said that it was a thumbs up she kind of fought her corner yeah. and I think she actually thought that it didn't count as a warning because then shortly after when she smashed her racket and got the point penalty she seemed kind of thrown by it and she started saying you know talking about how she wasn't a cheat even though to be honest a coaching I don't think anyone would have uh, Yeah, I don't think anyone would have viewed Received her as, it cheat. as cheating no yeah. I don't think so but that's what she got really hepped up about and that's, again, where the... It's worth pointing out there's a, an escalating kind of... Your, your, mm. The punishment escalates. You initially get a warning and then a second warning, you lose a point and a third warning, you lose a game. Mm-hmm. And thereafter, you continue to lose games unless you completely lose the racket. So her second warning was for breaking the racket. Yes. And then yes. the third one was for calling... For calling him a thief. A thief. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so basically when she broke the racket, that was in response to Osaka having broke back. Um, at that point, Serena was 3-1 up, but then Osaka broke back. She squandered what could have been a 4-1 lead and she was frustrated, went back, got the point penalty. Um, then oh, that meant that Osaka was 15 love up automatically when she was going to serve for 3 all. And then when they went to the changeover, that's when Serena started um, getting on to Carlos Ramos, the umpire, started calling him a thief. So you were watching all this in, mm-hmm. in real time. Yes. I mean, I am like, uh, I'd say much of the rest of the sports were caught up with it on Sunday morning. You know, mm-hmm. it, it blew up on Twitter, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. In real time, what was your reaction as you were watching? In real time, I... Pff, I suppose I was kind of frustrated that Serena was doing this. Um, I thought that she was kind of escalating the situation. I thought, I actually thought the umpire unnecessarily escalated the situation as well because when it came to him uh, imposing the game penalty, like I think that was fairly unprecedented um, given that it was a final, given that Osaka was kind of on her way to winning anyway. Like it wasn't Serena's evening. I think, you know, the idea of her mounting a comeback at that stage was fairly unlikely, if not impossible. And... So I, I was frustrated that Serena was letting it get to her, but I kind of understood where she was coming from. But then, I mean, when she was calling the tournament officials on court and she was actually crying, I, like I've never really seen anything like that in a final. And my Twitter was just like blowing up because I follow a lot of tennis mm. writers and obviously a lot of American journalists would have been watching it as well. But it was just like the scenes were probably, it was the most baffling thing I've seen since the last time she had a similar kind of meltdown at the at the US Open a few years ago. I watched it back a couple of times yesterday and what really struck me was it was almost like, you know in real life when you see two people have a row and it's getting just a wee bit beyond, you know if say two members of your family are having mm. a row and you can, you, you can sort of see the trigger points in each of them and at, at a certain point uh, you can see both of their eyes kind of glaze over and they both say, fuck it. Mm-hmm. That's clear. Yeah. Both of them at any stage, 
needed to be an adult somewhere mm-hmm. along the way. And if I hold the umpire responsible for, for anything, I hold him responsible for not being an adult mm-hmm. and not sort of saying, hang on, the whole world is watching this. I have a responsibility mm-hmm. not to let this get out of hand. Yeah. If I hold her responsible for anything, it's for not realising, you know, how much she had to lose compared to him. Mm-hmm. Like nobody, like yeah. in a week, nobody remember his name. Today, people, you know, tennis people will remember Carlos Ramos. Mm-hmm. But to most people, he's just the umpire. Mm-hmm. Like he's a guy in a jacket. Mm-hmm. So like the, the he, she needed to realise at a certain point, I have way more to lose here mm-hmm. by this. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the fault on, on either side, that they both just went went to a point where they both said, I, know, I don't care anymore. This is between me and you and the rest of the world doesn't matter. Yeah. And to be honest, I would say that I, I completely agree. I think Serena should have realised I'm you know, the greatest tennis player of all time, at least in the, the women's game for sure. And what is going to happen over the next couple of days is that I will be dominating in conversation. You know, there will be people... You know, even if Osaka wins this, she's going to become a footnote because the whole conversation will be about this row and she probably should have stepped back. But at the same time, I do think that the umpire really should have de-escalated the situation where she called him a thief, just looked past it and kind of said, look, you know, she's she's has she's had lost her temper. You know, she's having a bit of a, a rant to herself, kind of, and just ignored it. But instead, he imposed a game penalty. And I just think, like, I think the argument now is that that wouldn't have happened in a men's final. I really don't think it would have happened in a men's final. I think that umpires are frequently abused by the male players, but they do kind of look past it and see that this is a game, you know, it's a match. People, you know, people are in their, in the zone, you know, not to take it personally. But I think I think the two of them took actually at different points took things personally that they shouldn't have. I think she took the coaching violation personally and she saw that it was kind of um, her being called to cheat. Mm. And I think that he took then the thief comment way too personally and imposed a penalty that I think was unwarranted. Mm. I find it staggering though that at some point, like once she broke the racket, fine, that's a, an obvious violation. But as she was ranting at him, I can't believe that he didn't at some point just stop and say, Serena, one more word. And I'm imposing a penalty. Exactly. That will usually be the protocol that they will at least get a warning before imposing the game penalty. And he has, like last year, um, when he, he got in trouble with Nadal, the same umpire, where he called Nadal for uh, playing slow. And Nadal reared up on him and got really annoyed and did actually a similar rant. He actually also said the thing that Serena said about he will never umpire one of my games again or never be on my court mm-hmm. again, I think, as it was. But he de-escalated that with Nadal the time. He did yeah. say just you're out of line and it stopped whereas it did that didn't happen with Serena Is there because uh, I mean going back over some of this essay reading some of the stuff and, and coming across these instances um, that level of sort of entitlement from top players from the, uh, and Nadal saying you'll never be on my court again from Serena saying something similar Federer all these guys um, and it is mostly guys of course um that seems to be a particularly unlikable strain in in top tennis players. Is is that really a thing? Uh, I think it's a thing. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I think um, I think because tennis is obviously an individual sport, I think mm. there are always a few players that just dominate the conversation and kind of do. They're the people who are bringing in the money, the audiences. And I think right. from that point of view, I think they do feel an ownership over the court. They feel like they can kind of dictate the way games are run, run and stuff. And I think, yeah, maybe it's unlikable, but I can kind of understand where mm. they're coming from at the same time when you think about what they're actually bringing to the sport and, and 
you know, yeah, I think I think it's certainly unlikable, but um, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be off-putting to me. Mm. The the sexism thing. I mean, I think some of the, the sexism thing that even sounds <laughs> flippant. Sounds flippant. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. does. It's awful, and I don't mean it to sound like that. Um, I. Have watched Serena and and have watched some of the things and I was writing a, a column about this this morning and um, the the first time that I ever came across uh, her you know being discriminated against uh, because of sexism or racism even um, in tennis uh, and I don't even remember what the instance was but I just remember reading whatever, whatever the the latest sort of outrage was. And I just remember going, why, my God, how, how, can I, how can anybody in tennis, you know, disrespect Serena Williams? Mm-hmm. You know, it, like, it just seems so weird to mm-hmm. me. And yet it clearly happens. Mm-hmm. It's clearly something she's had to fight. Um, the, even the thing earlier in the month, the, the, the cat suit mm-hmm. yeah. problem yeah. in France is appalling. Like mm-hmm. it's, it, and it's a clear, clear issue of discrimination, a clear issue of a nervous attitude to women's bodies even, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that she can reach for it in a... It just, it it really jumped out at me, her comment afterwards, saying, I see it as a sexist decision mm-hmm. because he would never or has never taken a game off a male player who has called him a thief. Now, I don't know if there ever was a male player who called him a thief yeah. out loud in front of millions of yeah, people. Yeah. Um but I don't know. Like that, that that's what I struggle with here. I, I don't know if she if it's a crying wolf kind of thing, if it's a if if you reach for discrimination, mm-hmm. then what happens when you're wrong? Like how 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 do we judge you when you're actually wrong? Yeah, that's kind of something I've kind of been wrestling with over the last kind of twenty four hours or so myself as I've kind of I suppose vacillated between mm-hmm. different opinions that, you know, he was just imposing the rules versus well she has kind of endured 20 years of discrimination. Mm. But I think with Serena, I think it's probably the first time in her career where she has a receptive audience who are kind of willing to call out discrimination, either racial or sexism, right? Mm. So I think, you know, we're in an era of Me Too, Time's Up, you know, even Colin Kaepernick taking Mm. the knee, that kind of stuff. And I think audiences now are more willing to actually listen to someone like Serena Williams, where I think five years ago, this conversation would not have been happening. Where people, No, definitely not. I don't think there would have been a conversation five years ago where people were like, is she kind of right? You know, is it sexism? Is it gender discrimination? I don't think that would have been happening. I think you would have had the kind of usual, she's a diva, you know, she's, you know, meltdown on court, you know, lost the plot kind of thing. Mm. But I don't think there would have been the same level of sympathy. I think it's actually pretty recent that, like probably in the last two or three years that people have, that she's been as, what's the word, like deified. Um, I think before that, I don't, I think she was kind of taken for granted. I don't think people were that interested in Mm. the kind of very obvious sexism and racism that was at play in in terms of some of her treatment. I mean, it's like four years ago that the Russian tennis president called her and her sister the Williams brothers that's and right. said that they were scary to look at. I mean, that's only four years ago. Is that only four years? I, 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 like, that, like if, you, if you'd if you pinned me uh, on a time for that, I would have said maybe a decade. Ago. No, it's October 2014. Like I just, because I was thinking when on the way in, I was yeah. like, oh, that was quite recent. But there's been tons of incidents like mm-hmm. that. I just don't think that she's had the receptive audience. So now I think she's able to dictate the kind of narrative and consensus in a way that she wasn't before and she's able to kind of 
say in a press conference, I'm fighting for women's rights, which I personally thought was a bit on the nose from her. Like, I think she said her piece on court and I think there's merit to what she said. I don't think that a male player would have been treated the same way, but I think to, to then come out and be like, I'm fighting for women's rights. Yeah, and I, 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 I wouldn't cheat. I have a daughter. Yeah. I mean, come on. I, yeah, I yeah. think, like, I think she... Like I said, I think that this is the first time in her career where she knows that people are listening to her and she's more powerful than she's probably ever been. But I think that she should acknowledge that she was fighting for herself and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think she has to necessarily turn it into this big um, gender uh, or racism thing. One of the there's been loads of interest and I read loads of interest and stuff about it yesterday. And one of the one of the pieces that really jumped out at me was uh, did you read Jonathan Liu's piece in, yes, the, in the Independent? Yeah. Um, and he made the like his points were were, were interesting in that, I, as he says, it is along the lines of, you know, when you have fought through the amount of things she has mm-hmm. fought through uh, on the court or off the court to get to where she is, then we shouldn't be overly surprised when somebody reacts in an outsized way. Mm-hmm. Um, and even wh- wh- what you're saying there about um, about the, the Russian guy, like, that is true. That is, that is a part of her lived experience. And that's what I was kind of trying to, to write in the column this morning, that, that eventually the sum total of a person is who they are, and that's who they that's who they become, and and sometimes that kind of bubbles up as something unattractive is the wrong word, but something that makes you kind of recoil. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in a way, could could have been what happened the other night. Yeah, I think it probably was. I think mm-hmm. like like Jonathan Liu kind of argued in his piece yesterday. Um, Serena Williams is someone who, from the age of about eight or nine, has enjoyed untold discrimination. You know, with some of it subtle, some of it like really, really, really not. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and I think. I think that that undoubtedly informs her perspective on things um, in terms of the slights that she can sometimes perceive that may not be as, I think, like it's not to kind of say that she's not kind of reading things correctly, but I think it it definitely um, informs how she sees the tennis establishment treat her. Like tennis is a sport that is so about propriety and kind of politeness and primness. Like when you see Roger Federer come out onto the Wimbledon court in his like monogrammed Mm. white cardigan, that's the image that tennis really, really wants to uphold and that's what it values. But it doesn't prize people like Serena Williams or even someone like Nick Kyrgios who's kind of messy and passionate Mm. and intense. That's not the image that they kind of want to uphold. And I think Serena Williams is really acutely aware of that and feels that she probably hasn't gotten the the respect that she deserves over the years for being the greatest player. Like, I I do think another thing that kind of informs these kind of outbursts and stuff is it's only in the last two or three years that I think people have started the conversation about her being the greatest player of all time. Mm -hmm. I think before that, even when she was winning Grand Slam after Grand Slam, I think there was almost an attitude, well, that's Serena, she's just really good. And there wasn't any kind of appreciation of her actual skill level and what makes her so good. Like earlier in the year, Madison Keys made a really good comment, I thought where she was saying that Madison Keys had lost a match in the French Open and she basically said that she got distracted because she knew that she would be playing Serena Williams in the next round. She was saying that players always elevate their level when they're playing Serena Williams. So they're playing their greatest tennis. And Serena said afterwards, yeah, that's right, because I can't even scout players anymore because they bring a different level to the game when they play me. And I think that hasn't been acknowledged or appreciated a lot. And I think 
like I said, I think when people years ago, I don't think there was an appreciation that actually she's just really good. I think there was always an Ashley, well, she's big, she's muscular, she's black. You know, how could these people even hope to compete with her? Um, and I think that's also part of what kind of informs this like me against the world kind of mentality that she has. Um, I think she's kind of been forced to adopt it, but I think it also helps fuel her as well. I always think actually about that video the BBC made a few years ago of her reciting the Still I Rise poem. Oh, yeah. By Maya Angelou. It was a really, really powerful um, just a little promo video. But I think that is totally her attitude. Like, still I rise, like, I've overcome all this adversity and people still are kind of hating or unwilling to appreciate my greatness, but still I rise. And I think that is kind of her attitude in tennis. Do you like her? Yeah, I really like her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You like I watching think, her, yeah? Yeah, I really like watching her. I think, you know, I'm 26. So she's been playing pretty much my whole life where I've been kind of conscious of sport. Like she started playing in 1998. I was six years old. And I do really remember her in Venus um, when I started watching tennis. And I think even from that perspective, maybe it's a bit of a sentimental thing. They've just always been around. But I do think she has had to deal with just an awful lot of... Uh, just grim stuff. I think, you know, it's not that long ago that she was at the Indian Wells and people were shouting the N-word at her. Like, that's kind of unthinkable now. But, I mean, it's tw- less than 20 years ago that was happening. So I think I think at the weekend, I think it was some of, some of her behaviour was kind of ugly, I would say, like a little bit entitled, but I kind of understood where she was coming from at the same time. Um, but I do wish that the conversation was a little bit more centred around Naomi Osaka as well because I think that girl grew up worshipping Serena Williams as well and had this amazing victory but no one's talking about her today and I think that's kind of I think that's quite sad Well we will be talking about her plenty into the future I guess if only because her sort of career in the public life has has exploded on this weekend Yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely And she's only 20 she definitely seems to have a lot ahead of her Yeah Amy thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about that Yet another pall of doom has settled over the Ireland soccer squad, Pat. We're kind of getting used to them, I think, at this stage. Yes, this this comes around once every uh, four or five, five or six years, I guess. Um, It's every few months now, I think. Well, I guess so, but at least we know how to handle it. Uh, Emmett uh, Malone is in uh, Poland. I mean, nothing uh, nothing settles the Irish soccer soul like another friendly in Poland, Uh, Emmett. Yeah, I think two of the the number of journalists uh, speak fairly fluent Polish in this (laughs) I'm not entirely sure whether that's connected with all the trips or not, but, um, but it certainly comes in handy in the restaurants at night. Um, and um, yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a very colourful history to to these um, um, to these games. Uh, I, I mean, if you look at you, if you look back generally, the, the two countries that we've played most down the years are Spain and uh, Poland, um, uh, good Catholic countries. Yes. Uh, and yet there's um, the kind of legend of. Um, of the the uh, FAI official back in the old days, who was supposed to have uh, had a, a bit of a liaison going in Poland, and to to facilitate this, um, the, the national team was dragged halfway across Europe on a very regular basis. Um, my first yeah. ever, uh, my first ever Ireland trip was to Bidgosh in. Oh, Bidgosh! I was on that. that was, was that the Brian Kerwin or? Yeah, was yeah, it about yeah, oh, okay. 03 or oh four or so? Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 and there was so much I, there was much talk of that uh, that that liaison then, and and uh, the the yeah. uh, the result well, of it, I, I mean, presume, is picking up a pension at this stage. Oh, oh I think he pushed up daisies. To be <laughs> fair, but um, um, but um, or otherwise, we I don't think we'd be having this conversation. But um, 
Uh, yeah, but uh, no, that, that's true. And that, that like, the, the, and there was much legend around Big Gosh as well. Like, uh, mm. which, which, which I, which for, I, I think we should take the time to apologize to our uh, Polish listeners uh, because that is not remotely the way you uh, pronounce it. But, um, uh, but, um, but it's certainly the way Mark Lawrenson used to pronounce it when he used to tell tales of the trips to Big Gosh <laughs> and how. Uh, how the, the team and, and officials would land in Warsaw and there'd be a bus outside for the players uh, and a bus outside for the um, for the officials, but they would be going to very different places and uh, the, the team would be dispatched to Big Gosh and the um, and the, the officials would hole up in a, in um, in a Polish hotel and um, and uh, <laughs> enjoy enjoy the capital, I guess, <laughs> enjoy all the all the hospitality the capital had to offer. Heady times, heady times. Oh, indeed. Um, how uh, just just how how doom laden is uh, is the trip this time? How's the last few days been since uh, the oh, unspeakable I mean, horror of the other night? Yeah, well, there's been no contact really between ourselves and the uh, and the squad. Uh, that won't happen until today. They were taking <laughs> they were taking a break, a well earned break from us. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so I'm not sure how Doom Lane it's going to be. It's not like it won't be. It won't have been helped by the reaction to the game. You know, um, O'Neill was pretty downbeat after the game the other night, which you would kind of expect. Um, but like I'm sure he's increased. He's more downbeat after having read the papers at the weekend. Uh, so um, yeah, look, it's not. It's not a great atmosphere. I think uh, O'Neill accepts that the, the last couple of results have been very disappointing. Uh, he would put them in a whole lot of context, and I think you know that's. You know, there's there's a there's a, a fairness to that, um, but um, but uh, you know, look, there, there, there's it's certainly not a oh, certainly not a joyous atmosphere. We've had two very bad results. This friendly, I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't matter, but on the other hand, you know, another bad result would, would not help things. Uh, and we're heading into two very big games next month. And, and and one a lot of the context that he talks about in terms of the the result the other night revolves around the players who are missing. But there's there's every chance that. that some or all of those players will be missing next month as well. So it's not a great situation. We're just um, at, at another point of our usual boom-bust cycle, it seems, um, that sure. people kind of say, oh, the man it's all the manager's fault. He can't get the players to perform for him anymore. Why can't he organise them? And then we try and oust them and we get in somebody who we overpay for. Is there any way of getting ourselves off this endless cycle? I think that's largely football that you're describing there. Um, <laughs> you know, both, both, both club and international. Um, that's the kind of the way people address the problem of team failing in, in any way is to get a new manager in. Um, in club football, you have some scope to change the players. In, in international, not so much. And in Ireland's case, not so much by 10. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a difficulty. But the, the, the fact that... that you know, changing a manager has this kind of crazy habit, often for no very good reason at all, it seems, um, of having a net effect or having a positive effect of giving the team a lift, um, you know, is the reason that people keep keep pushing for it. I was, I've been interested in the few days since the uh, the game against Wales to, to, to listen to people talk about, the, you know, the lack of an apparent system, the, the, the fact that the players don't seem to really kind of understand their roles, and, and, and people are talking about getting back to something rigid, some playing the same system all the time, uh, drumming into players uh, that, you you know what they have to do every minute of the game, and and, and that's that's uh, that's Giovanni Trapattoni. People are talking about, and um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and and five years ago, that the fact that he did that, the fact that he kind of didn't rate the players that we had, and 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 was very open about that, but felt that if he drummed the very basics into them, that they understood the system, that we would at the very least be hard to beat. 
seems to be what people are kind of yearning for now slightly you know when 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 he was sort of chased out the door five years ago so there is this cycle and it's it's uh, you know not just about kind of personalities and who can raise you know uh, get get players going in the dreadnought but also about you know um the whole wider style and approach and we do seem to be you know going around in circles slightly on that that all of that said you know there's definitely um that 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 it did seem to be it does seem to be a concern that uh, I, I like i talked to O'Neill at some length about this a few weeks ago about um the players not understanding their roles or that that this accusation was made because he only had named his team an hour beforehand and uh, he fiercely defended his position on it absolutely insisted that the players uh, do know their role going out and um, and talked about as he as he, as he often does the great managers he and, and Roy Keane had worked with who uh, took this approach but um, but there's no doubt as I kind of try to argue with him that, that he's not dealing with with players of that level and and we're, we're both agreed everybody's agreed that international football has its limitations in terms of the squad coming together so he has uh, when it boils down to it he he believes that he can get them playing again but um, you know he, he like this game on the face of it doesn't matter but if it's lost, it will. And uh, if it's lost badly, particularly. And uh, then we have the two games next month, which are very, very big games for, for Martin O'Neill now. Emmett, you were writing in the paper over the weekend, uh, you know, just about the the level of quality of player that's available sure. now. And look, this this is a, a something, you know, that, that comes up every time Ireland come into the doldrums. You know, we you know we, we, we have people banging the drum and going, look, we just don't have the players we used to have. But yeah. it seems particularly acute now. And I know that when you take out Robbie Brady and James McCarthy out of the team the other night, you know, you're, mm. you, the, the cupboard looks probably more bare than, than it is but it does seem to be a time of, of really acute shortage of of quality international players Yeah, absolutely I mean, if you know, I, I don't think the numbers, um, funny enough, are, are as dramatic. The difference in numbers in terms of the, the number of players we have playing in the Premier League are, are, have declined that dramatically. But um, certainly the quality of the clubs that they're playing for has. Uh, we have no players um, in, uh, in, in you know, the top six or eight clubs in Europe, in, in, in England at the moment. You know, in, in terms of European competition this year, Johnny Hayes uh, at Celtic, and he's not a regular starter there, is the only player we have in any sort of European competition this year at all so there has been there has been a, a decline it's been steady it's been coming for a long time if you talk to people in football 20 years ago they could see the writing on the wall that uh, that the approach of the premier league clubs where all our players hoped to go was it was becoming more international that they were looking further afield they were looking to for, first of all it was scandinavia then it was mainland europe now it's africa asia south america wherever the players are they will go and find them and they will find them at a very young age um, and so they are developing those players now you know that said we've seen the Academies, the big academies at Manchester City and um, and Chelsea produced some very fine young English players uh, in the last few years, but um, but not again on the on the sort of scale numbers wise that they were doing before. And the Irish players, by and large, except the really exceptional ones, have been squeezed out. And that's fine if you're 16 and you're really exceptional, you still go to Manchester City or Liverpool or, or Arsenal, which a few lads have done. But what we were depending on was the lads who perhaps weren't quite so exceptional at that 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 stage, but went on to develop into very fine players and uh, and became the backbone of the international team. That's not really happening at the moment. What's belatedly happened is that the FAI have um, reorganised underage football in Ireland. They have introduced national leagues at under 17, under 19, under 15 level, under 13 is on the way. Um, this is all very welcome, but and, and, and there's been a 
very large shift towards uh, the national league clubs, the electricity league clubs being responsible for 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 that that youth development system. That's great. I mean, it's it was long overdue. Um, uh, the schoolboy Dublin schoolboy clubs uh, feel aggrieved by the way it was done and the and the loss of influence that they've had and the loss of money that they will have over players going away at, at an older age when they've played a bit in Ireland. But for the players, it's good. They get an education. They you know they can stay at home for longer. They can play serious competitive football at a, at a fairly serious level. And then if they're good enough, they will go. This is all kind of this is all all the positive. The negative is that. There's been no money for it. And the League of Ireland clubs, as you're well aware, as everybody's well aware, are largely sort of, you know, to put it nicely, hand-to-mouth operations. And um, and they haven't had the money required to really invest heavily in this and do it very, very well. And so they're, they're, they're trying to scrape along. And the FAI, because of the debt it's carrying from 10 years ago on the stadium, haven't had the money to really pump into the system. So we're getting somewhere. We're going somewhere. We're going to a better place, I think, in terms because there's no going back to where we were. Um, but, uh, but it's going to take quite some time. And in the meantime, I don't think Martin O'Neill is going to be the only manager that uh, finds himself struggling along and finds himself trying to, in the politest way possible, without completely insulting his players, something Trapdoni wasn't entirely averse to, <laughs> um, uh, just kind of, you know, talking about the quality of, of what he has to work with. That's the thing. I mean, I think, I think everybody knows on some level if they take an interest in, in the Irish soccer team or Irish soccer generally. I think they know on, on some level that... Um, this is going to be a time when people are going to have to be patient, you know, but... And yet there's very little patience. Well, this there's is going to be it, you know? After, after, after Wales, you know, mm. the, as you say, you know, the immediate thing is let's get rid of the manager. Um, I think Martin O'Neill alienated himself to some extent with, the, with you know, with, with talking to clubs um, last year. The support has sort of turned against him on the base of that. There's an element of the support has been critical all along of the style of football he plays because he, they basically want us to commit at whatever cost to playing a better brand of football. Uh, now, I, I, O'Neill says he wants to play nicer football um, uh, that you know, uh, and I, I believe that. I, I believe he wants to play it, but I believe he's also the ultimate pragmatist. That's kind of why why he was hired in the first place. Yeah, yeah but um, but. I think there is, on the one level, on a logical level, a lot of understanding that this is a difficult time for the team. Um, there's talk of transition, but it's not really. I mean, you know, there's a couple of players gone, there's a couple of players come in, but there aren't, you know, John Walters is still playing because there is not a 22-year-old pushing him out of the team, no. which should be happening under normal circumstances because John Walters is manifestly not the player he was. So, so it, it is genuinely difficult for O'Neill. I think a lot of people appreciate that. And yet, when you lose one game 5-1 and then your next competitive game a year later 4-1 and there is the threat that, that you know, those two teams are going to kind of really give you bad beatings again, then I, I think it's just inevitable. I think it's one of the, it's, it's, it's slightly sad, but it's, it's certainly inevitable that people are going to, you know, question the manager because they look at it and they think somebody else could organise this better. Somebody else could improve on those results. And, um, and right now, O'Neill, you know, it's, it's hard to argue for O'Neill that somebody else wouldn't immediately improve on those results but but beyond that I think he's absolutely confident in his own ability and what he has achieved with this team over the, over the last years okay the European Championships aren't what they were some a fact he, he conveniently overlooks every time he talks about them it's um it's 2014s now not the eight of Jack Charlton's year or the 12 even the 12 of of, of Trapatoni's but he got us there we came out of a, a tough looking group uh, and 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 he talked endlessly about how we might have beaten France if we'd had a few more days 
and you know that's an that's that's you know who who knows you know we we certainly did okay at the European Championships mm. I, I, yeah well uh, for the minute uh, Emmett you have uh, your Polish to work on so we'll leave you to that <laughs> and uh, we will talk to you along the road somewhere thanks a million for that. Absolutely. Take care, lads. And thanks very much to Amy O'Connor, who was in earlier to talk to us about Serena Williams. Thank you, Pat. Thanks, Bob. Cheers, Declan, behind the desk. And we will talk to everybody next week. Take it easy, folks. 